He is without a doubt the most celebrated author in the English language and is widely regarded as arguably the greatest author who ever lived. William Shakespeare's three dozen plays, 154 sonnets, and other works have not just been critically acclaimed over the centuries, but remained popular with the public over 400 years after they were written. A Shakespearean play, or perhaps even festival, will almost certainly appear somewhere near you, no matter where you're located in the United States, and it'll probably be well attended. After London, England's greatest tourist attraction is the alleged birthplace of the Bard. Almost everyone quotes Shakespeare, even if they don't realize they're doing so. When Michael H. Hart wrote The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history, he placed Shakespeare higher than any other literary figure, at number 31. Hart reckoned his enduring influence earned Shakespeare a spot ahead of Marconi, Edison, and even Napoleon. Although one might argue over exactly how influential Shakespeare is and has been, his talent and achievements indisputably make him one of history's most singular artistic figures. Thus, it comes as a surprise for most people to learn that the figure of William Shakespeare is actually quite mysterious. Scholars have been trying to flesh out the playwright for hundreds of years, yet he remains elusive, a surprisingly shadowy figure. Early researchers into the strange case of William Shakespeare concluded that his works were likely the work of a nobleman, not the actor and businessman from Stratford-on-Avon. Francis Bacon was the original suspect, but over the years another man has emerged as the candidate. That man is the subject of a recent biography entitled Shakespeare by Another Name, The Life of Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, The Man Who Was Shakespeare. We're joined now by its author, Mark Anderson, from his home in Massachusetts. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark Anderson. Thank you, Doug. I, I'm tickled to note, Mark, that it's, it's more properly Dr. Anderson, given that you have a degree in astrophysics. Well, technically, it's not doctor. Uh, I have a master's. I don't, I don't have a Ph.D. All right. Well, you nevertheless are an astrophysicist, and we have to ask, what got an astrophysicist caught up in this controversy over who Shakespeare was? Well, th th isn't that a perfect transition? It's, it's, it seems like one to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I tell you, it was, um, it, it was a transition to... Uh, to writing of all varieties. I was a, a journalist uh, after I left graduate school in 1993, and I was looking for great stories, as you know, freelance journalists are always on the path of good stories. And I heard about the, uh, the controversy over, over Shakespeare authorship. And the, the thing that, was, that really kind of caught my eye was there was actually a local angle for me. I live in western Massachusetts, and at that time, in the early 1990s, there was a scholar at the University of Massachusetts who was studying the uh, personal uh, hand-annotated copy of the Bible owned by Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, an Elizabethan nobleman who was a playwright and a poet but, and was said to be a, you know, a superlative uh, writer, but supposedly his works haven't come down to us. Now, what happened was this scholar looked at de Vere's Bible, which there are like a thousand different places where he underlines passages or writes notes in the, in the margins and things like that. Right. He found that fully one quarter of those markings in De Vere's Bible show up as biblical references in the Shakespeare canon. And that was just a really stunning confirmation of this theory that's been around since the 1920s, that, that De Vere was, was, was the bard. Now, I found it striking that, that uh, De Vere Geneva Bible, I guess it is, is in the Folger Shakespeare Library. Which, which is odd. It's, I, I, I suppose it's, it's truly Shakespearean. I mean, you know, the, the bard was, was a man of, uh, who, who loved ironies, and um, I, I, think he would, I think he would relish that. Well, Mark, for the most part, university English departments seem hostile to the notion that there is doubt about who wrote Shakespeare. How, how do you account for that attitude? First, 
of all, for the most part, is correct, but what's called the Oxfordian theory, that is the, the, the idea that De Vere was either the primary author or the author of, of these plays, uh, published under the name Shakespeare. The Oxfordian theory has actually been in ascendance in the academy. There, there is now an academic conference that's been going now for 10 years um, at Concordia University in Portland, Oregon, and that gathers scholars from you know, all around the globe who are uh, studying the life and times of Edward de Vere primarily, although there are some people who are looking at, at other possible contributors or authors. So you're, you're right. A majority of, of scholars still scoff at the notion that, that de Vere could have possibly contributed to or, or written these works. But twas ever thus. I mean, if you look at the history of practically any major theory you know, or, or major idea, um, it starts off as a controversial idea that very few people accept, and then it slowly gains acceptance, and that's what's going on right now. Yeah, actually, I wanted to quote one of the uh, discussions of your book and this whole controversy, and, and we should point out to listeners that the current edition, I believe, of Smithsonian Magazine has an article which quotes you, to be or not to be Shakespeare. That's correct. Yeah, it's the September issue of, of the Smithsonian, I believe it is. Well, someone, someone uh, published a quote on the web from uh, the, the biologist J.B.S. Haldane on the four stages of acceptance, which I thought was worth uh, throwing in. The first was, this is worthless nonsense. The second is, this is interesting, but perverse point of view. The third was, this is true, but, but quite unimportant. And the fourth was, I always said so, <laughs> which I kind of think, in, in, in our opinion, that may be where this is going to eventually go. We're, we're not at that fourth stage yet, but we're, we're, we're well on our way, I would say. Well, I'm really keen to talk about Edward de Vere and, and his life, but a lot of people, uh, I think, don't know really much about this controversy, so can you outline maybe in, for a few minutes why it is the traditional author, that man from Stratford-on-Avon, is rather unlikely to have been the, the author William Shakespeare? Well, you're right. I mean, it, it does start off with, with examining the life of William Shakespeare, or Shakespeare, as some people refer to him, a, an actor and a shareholder in the Globe Theatre. Uh, he was. He grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon, and he moved to London. And it was said that he was an author. What we have, interestingly, however, are uh, plays that were published under his name. Uh, so a bunch of plays came out. And this is we're talking the late 1500s, early 1600s, 1590s, early 1600s. And uh, these plays had the name William Shakespeare on the title page. Now that would seem to do it. But the interesting thing is when when you actually look at the historical record of this man. Everything is kind of planetary distance from, uh, from, from what you would expect. And so as a result, there, there's been skepticism and doubt for, for centuries, actually. Uh, people such as Walt Whitman and Mark Twain have all looked at the record of Will Shakespeare of Stratford, again, the actor and entrepreneur, and said that there's clearly something going on behind the scenes here. The material record of his life is one that is fully consistent with what I said, an, an actor and a shareholder and an entrepreneur. But there are no letters, no documents, there are no manuscripts, there's not even a grocery list, there's nothing in his handwriting save for six signatures on documents prepared by other people. He did not write any letters, there was only one letter that was written to him concerning a loan and that letter was never sent. There is no record of any books, there's no record of, of any education, any traveling. Essentially he grew up from what we can tell, in Stratford-upon-Avon and moved to London and uh, became active in the theater, and, and, and that's it. Now, people object and say, well, you know, genius, you know, strikes all walks of life, and that's certainly true. But uh, I, I think it is interesting to note, too, 
that there was, in fact, scuttlebutt around London, and I talk about this in, in my book, that the greatest author of the time was actually something of a disguise, something of a front. There were people like um, a guy by the name of Joseph Hall who published a book in 1599, right in the thick of this, and he identifies, he talks about the author of Venus and Adonis, which is a poem published under the name Shakespeare. It says that, that, this, that this man shifts his writings to another person's name. Another poet, uh, a little bit more than a decade later, named Richard Brathwaite, reflects back on the Elizabethan period, and, and he says that the greatest works of the Elizabethan age were those that were, quote, prettily shadowed in a borrowed name. Mm-hmm. And you, you see these again and again and again. The, I talk about these um, at various points throughout my, throughout my book, and they start to sow some seeds of doubt. And that's where it begins. But to me, where it really ends up is with Devere, because where there is a gaping absence of any kind of connective threads or tissue between the life and the work, um, with Devere, it's practically everywhere. Every single play and poem um, seems to be springing from his life and life story. Uh, you know, he had three daughters whom he dispersed his ancestral fiefdom amongst. He got into an interfamily war between his family and his mistress's family in, uh, when he was in his 30s. Like, like King Lear, Romeo, and Juliet. King yeah. Lear and Romeo and yeah. Juliet, you said it exactly. Uh, he was actually married to the daughter of the, of the chief counselor of the Elizabethan court, a man who has been identified for more than a century as the historical prototype for the character Polonius. So right there you have the triangle of, of Hamlet, Ophelia, and Polonius. That's in Devere's life. You, you, can, you can go through each of these plays, um, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. It's recounting some of the uh, strange uh, nuptial negotiations that are that are taking place between Devere and his daughter. In fact, it was known that Midsummer Night's Dream was performed uh, at Devere's daughter's wedding. Right. You go down the list, and it, and like I said, practically with with every play, every poem, even most scenes of every play, there are Devereian moments. One might say. Well, yeah, Mark. It really it struck me in in, in looking this. I mean, I, I originally found out about this reading Michael Hart's book, which, which I mentioned, the One Hundred, where he gets into this whole controversy and explains uh, that uh, the matter of doubt. We'd also re- should probably refer listeners to Mark Twain's famous essay on the topic: Is Shakespeare dead? And yeah, I mean, I, I, upon reading this, I, I was converted to the Oxfordian camp, but but I did note that uh, in spite of that, biographies of of Shakespeare, quote unquote, Shakespeare are are just churned out uh, by by authors all over the country, and yet there's so little, as you point out, to tie this uh, this guy. This this we know he was a an, an actor, we know he was a businessman, but to tie him to the actual written works, and and so your your book apparently just went forward with the idea that well let's let's just assume it was Devere and see where the chips fall. Well put, Doug. I think that's that's indeed. Our modus, or you know, sort of the modus operandi of Shakespeare by another name, namely to set aside, at least one could say for argument's sake, to set aside the controversy. Not to say that I don't. I mean, my I, I have many endnotes. I have two thousand endnotes in this book, and so yeah, if, uh-huh. if you're interested yeah. in following the actual arguments, it's there in the book. But you just don't have to trouble yourself with it. You can just follow the story, uh, and then later, you know, catch up on on the endnotes where I, you know, kind of. Where I basically defend each point. Oh yeah, you got like 140 pages of endnotes. I was quite quite amazed. Um, well, <clears throat> so so it is kind of a, a dual layer approach. But at at the first layer, and and you know the the most important layer is just telling the story. 
and uh, and that is uh, something that I found when I got into this subject in 1993. Again, as a journalist, looking to tell um, the Oxfordian story, looking to tell Edward de Vere's story, uh, I found that a lot of the books and articles, um, in fact, you know, lion's share of them were arguing back and forth, kind of a he said, she said, um, and that's important. That's significant. We need that too. But you know, in terms of reaching out to the public, you know, most people don't care about, you know, some of the finer points about this or that argument. They just, you know, tell me a good story. Is it a great mystery story? Is it, is it an amazing life? Is it an epic adventure? Yes, yes, and yes. And that's the story that Shakespeare by another name tells. We're speaking with Mark Anderson, author of Shakespeare by Another Name. Well, Devere's story, I think it may have been Orson Welles, I don't know, someone once said, you know, if Devere didn't write Shakespeare, he should have, because, because the life he led just is what is reflected in the plays. I was talking about this to a professor uh, uh, from UOP, University of the Pacific here in, in Stockton. We got talking about this, this matter, and uh, she said, look, Shakespeare was composing while Devere was decomposing, <laughs> alleging, of course, that... Touche, nice, nice, nice way of putting it, right. yes alleging that De Vere, who died in 1604, couldn't be Shakespeare because it's claimed some of the plays were written after that time. This has long been considered one of the strongest arguments against De Vere, but I notice your book seems to have done a jujitsu flip on, on this point and turned it right on its head. Let's talk about, talk about that. Well, you're right. The, the, the argument has been since the 1920s when this idea was first proposed by a man named J. Thomas Loney. Um, it was noted that, okay, De Vere died in 1604, and the conventional chronology of the Shakespeare plays, it, you know, according to you know mainstream scholars, it says, okay, well, the Shakespeare plays kept turning up through the 16 teens. They they say conventionally, you know, Shakespeare stopped writing around 1612, 1613. Now, that is at least on its surface, you know, a real problem. I mean, if if there could be irrefutable evidence that you know this or that play was definitely written after 1604, well, then De Vere is, is ruled out of court. And so, indeed, that, that has been the, uh, the battleground, the, sort of the primary battleground, is when were these plays written, or at least when were the later plays written? Because if, if they can prove that one of the later plays was written after 1604, then uh, out goes the De Vere theory, the Oxfordian theory with, with the bathwater. So there, there have been a few plays that have been, well, really... There's been one play that, that has been kind of the centerpiece of this argument, and that play is The Tempest. And I can talk about that um, at some length, but let me just uh, outline the, the general point here, which is that um, the, the Shakespeare plays appeared in print um, from, the 15, from 1593 onward. The, the first, work, first Shakespeare work appeared um, in 1593. It was a poem called Venus and Adonis. And from that point forward, the Shakespeare plays just kept coming out about two a year until 1604, the year that De Vere died. And then in 1604, there was a silence. There was nothing new. That it, there are no new Shakespeare plays that appeared in print after 1604 with these two brief windows uh, accepted. There was uh, 1608 to 1609, four new works that appeared in print. And uh, that was also, it happens, uh, the moment when De Vere's widow was selling their old estate. And it stands to reason that there was indeed some house cleaning going on. Right. And then there's a, a, a build-up to the, the famous first folio, the complete works of Shakespeare. At that point, even Shakespeare of Stratford is dead. Right. Um, that was in the 1620s. So, so really, if you look at the publication history, it, it points to 1604 as a watershed year. And if you go through all of the different uh, arguments, and I do this in an appendix to my book, um, you in fact find that 
a vast preponderance, indeed, I would argue, the whole of the docket of evidence points to 1604 as the year that Shakespeare stopped composing. Now, why would that be if it were Will Shakespeare of Stratford? I mean, he lived until 1616, and, uh, you know, again, the conventional story goes, he kept, you know, he was in London and was turning these plays out through the 16, early 16-teens. Well, the answer is that they, they've got the wrong man, and, and that, that answer keeps cropping up in right. many different forms in this book. Right. You point out in the book that actually someone concluded like a, a hundred years ago that, that there's nothing in Shakespeare past, uh, past those published past 1604. That's true. And there, there, was, there was one outstanding exception to that point, and that exception was one source for The Tempest. There was an account of a shipwreck in Bermuda. The, the shipwreck took place, I believe, in 1608. And it is said that, that Shakespeare's The Tempest refers to, to one particular manuscript account of that shipwreck. Um, if that were indeed true, again, that, that, that could be a, a silver bullet right there. Right. But in fact, the paperback uh, edition of my book just, just came out. Um, and this is, I mean, talk about hot, out, hot off the presses. This new research um, that is uh, now being peer, you know, going to be published in some leading peer-reviewed journals, that came in after my hard cover went to press, but I was able to put it into the paperback edition. Basically, what, what these scholars discovered is that the text that the Tempest supposedly refers to, they, they, they find that, in fact, both the Tempest and this shipwreck um, manuscript are actually referring to, to a fictional account of a shipwreck from the mid-16th century. And the interesting part of that story is that we know for a fact that that account written by this guy named Eden was in the personal library of De Vere's private tutor, Sir Thomas Smith, and in the, and in the library of De Vere's father-in-law and guardian, Lord Burley. Yet again, the, 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 the evidence, even the, what's said to be the, the strongest evidence against the Oxfordian theory on closer examination, it in fact turns out to be a, a, an argument in favor of De Vere. Well, I think one of the things that, that Mark impresses people about your book is is the Italian section. You traced what Edward de Vere did on a trip he made to the continent when he was 26, and again and again and again, things he would have witnessed, things he would have encountered, show up in the Shakespeare plays. And I think that's really impressed a lot of people. I, I think Italy is has really been ne- neglected because... You know, the conventional story of, of Shakespeare of Stratford has a man who grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon. He moves to London, and about as far south as they can ever trace him is, is the south bank of the Thames. So scholars have, for a long time, been kind of closing their eyes, I think, to the amazing correlations between uh, and, and, and detailed knowledge of specific regions of Italy. And it's not just that, you know, Shakespeare accurately portrays every single location that he, you know, writes in, that, that, that he writes about in plays. I mean, for instance, Athens. There's a play, Timon of Athens, and then there's a, the, the play Midsummer Night's Dream ostensibly takes place in a forest outside of Athens. Athens is not portrayed really, and Greek scholars look at, at Shakespeare's portrayal of Athens, and they say, well, you know, there's nothing really here. But Italian scholars, and I quote them extensively in, in my book, point out again and again that Shakespeare gets so many arcane details of Italian life and culture exactly right. In fact, to the point that Shakespeare has never been proved wrong um, wow. in, in terms of his Italian knowledge. Now, people have claimed that, but I'll, I'll just give you a, a few examples. 
And, and the reason that becomes significant in, in the case of De Vere is that De Vere actually lived in Venice. He bought a house in Venice, and he lived in Venice, uh, and, and Venice was kind of his home base for an Italian tour that he took um, when he was age uh, 24 to 26. So if you trace De Vere's footsteps, he lived in Venice, he traveled in Sicily, uh, we know he traveled in Genoa and Milan, we know he traveled in Florence and Siena in Tuscany, but there were many other regions that he never, so far as we can tell, that he never visited. Um, and those regions that Shakespeare you know, portrays so convincingly are, in fact, just those regions where, where we know De Vere visited. Right. There, there's a scene in, in, uh, in Othello where um, Othello is, where uh, rather Desdemona's father is talking about, um, he's, he's outraged about Othello's you know, relationship with Desdemona, and he calls for what he calls special officers of the night. Now, it's just kind of a throwaway line, but that reveals uh, knowledge that you could not find in any guidebook if you were living in London. You had to have been to Venice to know that Venice actually had two different police forces. This was unlike any other city in Europe. Venice had a daytime police force, and then they had these special officers of the night, the, the Signore di Notte. Huh. And in Two Gentlemen of Verona, it's, it's tracing his journey uh, across Lombardy Plain, which was taken by boat in those days. And, you know, people point to Two Gentlemen of Verona, you know, they say, well, you see, Shakespeare didn't know what he was doing because he has characters in the play travel between landlocked Italian cities, and he's saying that they're traveling by boat. So you see, Shakespeare didn't know Italy. Well, in fact, it's these scholars who don't know 16th century <laughs> Italy. Um, and, and in fact, there, and again, I'm, I'm drawing from some excellent um, uh, scholarship on, uh, on Shakespeare in Italy done by people who really know 16th century Italy, and they point out not only, not only was there... Um, water travel between, you know, between Milan and Verona, but that was the standard route of, you know, that, that was the standard means of passage between those two cities. And Shakespeare gets so many details right about that, uh, about that journey. And in fact, there are a few things that are peculiar to the tides and the climate and um, the floods uh, that took place on one of the rivers um, during 1576, the year that De Vere was traveling uh, along that route. Yeah, Mark, what really impressed me was that uh, it's often cited that Shakespeare obviously didn't know his uh, continental geography because he refers to the seacoast of Bohemia, but you point out that when, when De Vere passed by that section of the Adriatic, Bohemia did have a seacoast. Yeah, it's, I mean, yet, yet again, the, the scholars, you know, who think they've, they've got one up on Shakespeare, they're, they're the ones who, who need to do a little bit more studying. And I say that not, not in that, you know, I, I'm discovering this thing here, you know, all these things by myself, but I'm drawing from, from all these great works that are kind of buried because people just assume that Shakespeare never went to Italy, so they just kind of leave it at that. Um, I, I would direct your listeners, by the way, to my website, ShakespeareByAnotherName.com, um, because I have an atlas, a, kind of an interactive atlas of De Vere's life that um, if, if, uh, if people use the, the program Google Earth, uh, which is a free download, you can download the atlas that, that I drew up of De Vere's life, and you can trace the steps that, that I talked about. Well, I guarantee I'll, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Mark, <I laughs> wish... ShakespeareByAnotherName.com. Good, good. I, I wish we had an hour to talk about this whole this topic, but we don't, so we're, we are running out of time. I guess we need to close with, okay, how did this all come about? Let's assume that Edward de Vere, a nobleman, did write the works of Shakespeare. How is it that they became associated with this man from Stratford, who was an actor? Well, I know we don't have much time, so I'll give you a three-word answer, sex and politics. <laughs> As with many things that are, that are concealed from us by you know powerful figures, <laughs> sex and politics are, are right in the heart of the Shakespeare mystery. The slightly longer version of that answer is that um, 
is that when, when you begin to re-examine the Shakespeare canon from the perspective of De Vere as the author, you recognize that De Vere was, uh, he was the Hamlet of the Elizabethan court. He was the man who was telling all of the dirty secrets of, uh, you know, of, of all the power players in the Elizabethan court. He was airing the court's dirty laundry. And so as a result, that led to, you know, kind of exposés that uh, I think many powerful people probably did not want associated with them. So they kind of in- introduced this, uh, this distance-creating mechanism of, of saying that it was just an actor who had no affiliation with the Elizabethan court. So the, the, the kind of um, unflinching portrayals of Queen Elizabeth, whom it was, De Vere, it was said, actually had a love affair with um, in, when De Vere was in his early 20s. Some of these characters, um, such as Cressida and Venus and Olivia in Twelfth Night, they're all based, and Cleopatra, I should add, are, are based in large part, I think, on Elizabeth. And some of these are very unflattering portraits of, right. you know, of the Virgin Queen. Right. And she's just one of many, many uh, figures in the Elizabethan court who come out uh, in, in their true colors, uh, and you know, sometimes very uh, amazingly so, and sometimes uh, quite unf- unflatteringly so. Well, you mentioned in the book that a lot of guys got thrown in the slammer for their works of art about that time that the people of power thought were unflattering. It's not unheard of that um, that authors who are you know politically controversial have to assume some kind of disguise to get their works recognized. I mean, even in recent American history in the 1950s and 1960s, um, when there was that whole blacklist, you know, the McCarthy era blacklisting period, um, there were screenwriters who were said to be communists or members of the Communist Party. And the only way that they could um, get their work made into movies was by hiring frontmen uh, who would, uh, you know, who said that, you know, well, I, I wrote this screenplay when in fact it was, you know, someone else. And there's a, a great movie uh, called the, the Front starring Woody Allen that came out in the mid-70s um, that, that talks just about that situation. That, that, and that's recent American history, but I'm saying this took, this took place in Elizabethan England, but it's just a much bigger and grander and more epic story. Mark, I wish we had uh, three times the amount of time that we do to talk about this because I just think it's a it's a barn burner of a good story. And is there any chances of becoming to the, the screen? Or have you sold the film rights to this? Shakespeare by another name has been optioned for a, a documentary. There's a uh, filmmaker in uh, Massachusetts and in, in Boston who's um, who's starting work on this uh, project and. So, so yeah. I mean, I think I think we can expect to see um, Shakespeare by another name assume other forms down the line. And I, I'm kind of viewing this as as a long-term project. And uh, I would urge people to check out the website. I have a, an email uh, list uh, that I send emails out once every three months or so, just kind of giving people updates. It'll take you know ten years or more maybe to to, to really kind of to, to really I think make a difference. So we're we're on our way. Mark Anderson, we appreciate your talking to us very much. We're, we're going to probably return to this subject in the spring when it's DeVere's birthday, and it's right. also uh, William of, of Stratford's birthday, and, and so that would be a good time to return to the topic. Hope you can join us at that time. Oh, that sounds excellent, Doug. Yeah, I would love to. All right. That was freelance author Mark Anderson, whose writings have appeared in Harper's, the Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, Rolling Stone, and on the PBS.org website. He joined us from his home in western Massachusetts. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.